Adam. Don't mind my voice. We kind of had a thing going on in our household. Younger son, older son. I uh, got sick and I think I got some of that, but uh, that's why I've got the raspity voice. But anyway, we had the chance to talk to Bill of Two Feet over Zoom video. Bill was born and raised in New York, born in Manhattan, grew up in the uh, Manhattan area, moved to Brooklyn a bit later in life, but he's a New York boy, born and raised in New York. We talked about how that was. He comes from a family that loves music. His dad kind of had an ear for music, but not a player. His sister played music a bit, but not to the extent of, of him. But he talked about learning guitar at an early age, then going to piano and then back to guitar, attending Berkeley, went there for a little bit. Before attending Berkeley, though, he played in different like wedding bands. He was always a young guitar player in these cover bands and different different projects. Never like a band band, but he would get hired on to do different like gigs. If somebody needed a guitar player, he was very good at just picking up songs and uh, joining bands and, and playing with them. Like I said, he went to Berkeley for a little bit, very little time, he said. But uh, when he got back home to New York is when he got a cracked version of Ableton. And that's when he started really putting songs out on SoundCloud and his project Two Feet formed. He had a huge viral hit on SoundCloud, which kind of put him on the map, got signed to Republic Records. We talked about the major success of his follow-up single, I Feel Like I'm Drowning. His next record, Pink, the concept album that he never had a chance to tour and the fascinating story behind it. It's called Max Mako is Dead, Right? And he hired an acting coach for it, put together these amazing music videos, but he had this really cool live show planned for, for the record. And he talks all about that. And he talks about his new album and the most recent song he's put out called Fire In My Head. You can watch our interview with Two Feet on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. We'd love it if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with two feet. So this is all about you. Once I said, uh, like I said, and uh, your journey, and we'll talk about obviously the new the new record and all that fun stuff. But I I'd love to know where were you born and raised? Uh, right here in New York City. Wow. What was that like? You grew up in the city? I did. Yeah. Um, it was cool. You know, you're surrounded by a bunch of stuff. I remember the first time I ever left the city, um, I was actually confused because I had grown up totally in New York, uh, in Manhattan and up in, you know, up in Harlem at first. And then we moved a little bit further down towards the park. Um, and when I first left uh, New York, I was like amazed that there weren't just like buildings everywhere. Like uh, I have that conscious memory of really being like, wow, there's just like a field here. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was uh, it was interesting, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's cool. It's kind of prideful to be a native New Yorker because, you know, most of the people uh, aren't. Yeah. And they're always like, where are you from? And I'm like, New York. And they're like, no, but like, where are you from? I'm like, no, like I'm born here on my passport. So <laughs> born in Manhattan. So <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm from San Diego and not born and raised there. Not a lot of people are from there either, like directly. Oh, yeah, it's that's like a, a transplant city. <laughs> that's a big transplant city too, yeah. I don't think I even know anyone born and raised in San Diego, to be honest. Now I know a lot of people move there, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what was it like growing up in Manhattan? Did you ever, like, I'm, I'm curious to know if you got like a driver's license or anything like that, or is that later in life? Uh, no, not really. Uh, later in life, I mean, the, the age here, you know, lots of places, um, you can get a license at like 15, you know, like some yeah. of my friends 
Midwest, New York. He, when I was, he was 18 and I think they're upping it now to actually 20 when you can get a license. Really? Cause it was 16 in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But, yeah. Wow. It was 18 when you're growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they're making it old, even older now. Wow. And I would just imagine because you don't really need to drive there, right? I mean, you can get around. You don't need to drive, yeah, not at all. I mean, people, I th- you know, you say that to people and people are like, oh yeah, you don't really need to drive in New York. But like to the extent that you really don't need to drive in New York is, is really crazy. I mean, you know, most parts of any part of Manhattan, you don't need to drive. If you live there, you know, a large part of Brooklyn, you can have a car, but you know, you still don't really need it. You know, it's not really till you get into the faraway reaches of like, you know, outer Queens, outer Brooklyn, or, you know, right on Long Island that you would need a car. Sure. Um, yeah. Same with most of the Bronx too. So. Yeah. Was it cool to kind of have that freedom to go about the whole city? I mean, I'm sure as a young kid, you could just get on the subway, right? And yeah, anywhere. <laughs> it was very easy to uh, kind of lie, you know, to your parents or your dad or whatever, like where you're going is, um, it's super, it's so easy for you to travel, you know, right. train and go as far as you want. So yeah, it was cool. I think, uh, the world is open. The world opens up a bit quicker to kids who grow up in New York than if you grow up in, you know, some place where you need a car or something like that. Sure. Sure. Well, how did you get to music? Are you from a musical family? I am from a family that likes music, but no, okay. not, they're not a musical, uh, family. No one plays an instrument except for my sister, but she's, uh, you know, she learned the same time as me, basically. But they all love, my dad is a huge uh, music nerd, you know, like just loves to listen to music, you know, always had really good sound systems and would like point out aspects of, of like, you know, what instruments were to me as a kid. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you know what I mean? He's just like an audiophile, like, you know, yeah, n- yeah. Nerd, nerd music guy. So. <laughs> Did that kind of spark your interest to, to perform and learn an instrument or is it more your sister or? Um, you know, yeah, he definitely, him teaching me about music and stuff definitely helped for sure. I think, um, the same thing with my sister, Sophie, we kind of both got inspired by him. You know, he was super, uh, open to it. And he also kind of felt that music is like foundational in education and all mm-hmm. kids learn music. So he got us, you know, even when we didn't really want to, you know, like made us join like the, the orchestra or the choir or whatever and stuff like that. Did you like, what about piano or was that something you learned too early? What was the first instrument you learned? I think the first instrument I learned, um, it was guitar. Oh, really? Yeah. And then piano, uh, a little bit after, but it was actually the guitar that I first learned. And then I, I kind of switched to piano for a little bit and and then wait, switched way back and heavily into guitar as I got older. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those two instruments are like kind of the main ones. When did you start playing guitar? Like how early on? I think I was seven. Wow. Yeah. About seven years old. Okay. And were you like, did you join? I mean, obviously at seven, you probably weren't in a band, but like, how did you, was it just like trying to learn other people's songs or how did you really start to cut your teeth? Yeah, I just would listen, you know, one part of me would, uh, you know, the I've noticed this as I've gone on tour, the radio in New York is very different from kind of the rest of the country. Um, uh-huh. A good example of that is um, there's this, that Justin Bieber song, Love Yourself or whatever, right? And it's just uh-huh. a song. 
Uh-huh. And, um, in New York, they never played the acoustic version basically ever. With they, they they would play a version with like a hip hop beat underneath. Oh, like it. a yeah, yeah, like a remix type yeah, version. But like, yeah, but like not like you know an EDM resist. It's just this. It was the same exact song, but they just put a hip hop beat under it. Right. So when I traveled to LA, that Justin Bieber song, I heard a lot. You know, you hear the original version a lot, but I would also hear a version of it with like a house beat under it not a hip-hop beat under it so la interesting yeah so there's there's stuff like that so new york's radio is a little different um there's definitely way more latin music Uh Um, there's way more hip-hop music on the the pop radio out here and um so i would just listen to the radio and you know santana you know i'd listen to santana a lot yeah the 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 90s version of santana you know like rob zombie right yeah yeah and I would pick up, you know, uh, stuff from that and like Ricky Martin. And I, I, would, I would try to learn stuff that I heard on the radio. And then I would try to learn older stuff, too, if I could find it um, in the very early days of YouTube. But uh, I actually picked, I think YouTube is made in 2005. So I was learning guitar before that. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's kind of how I sort of uh, developed it. I didn't really have a teacher or anything. Okay. The radio thing fascinates me because I, I came from radio just for 16 years. Yeah. And I, yeah. first time I heard your song is I was on a radio station in San Diego called 91X and we used to play oh, like, right. drowning, yeah. like all the time. Oh, you're from that station. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Originally, yeah. not anymore, Originally. but yeah. Yeah. No, I know that station. Very familiar with it. Yeah. You guys, uh, that station was super supportive for a long time. That's cool. Yeah. We love yeah. that record. I mean, we played it constantly. You oh, were like wow. one of the, yeah, probably one of at the time when the when the when the record came out that was probably like one of the most rotated songs in our playlist really? wow yeah. well thank you i appreciate that That's yeah awesome. no we we love that record and but anyway <laughs> that's interesting to me that the the justin bieber thing because we had a sister station that was a you know a top 40 station and when bands would cross over the the threshold like we would start playing it and then it would get picked up by you know top 40 Right. And they would always change it a bit. And the, the one thing, the one song I could remember was um, Rag and Bone Man. When his song cr- cr- crossed over. Human? Yeah. When it yeah. crossed over to Top 40, it was like we they added like some type of beat that wasn't like in the exactly. song. Exactly. <laughs> Super common. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is this? <laughs> Yep. I, and I kind of love listening for that when I go on tour, I, we always put on the radio because they always change something a little bit and it's um, like a signal of what that area might be a little bit more into. So, sure. So, yeah. So what did you, I did, re, I saw that you were in like a jazz blues type like band. Was that in New York? Yeah, it wasn't really. Um, I was basically, uh, you know, by the time I was a teenager, late teenager, I was, um, uh, you know, very good at guitar. I can kind of just play anything anyone asked me to. And so I would sort of fill in for random bands, I guess, if the guitarist couldn't be there. Uh, you know, lots of times I was playing like uh, gigs with professional, you know, like wedding bands. So I would be like oh. way younger than like, you know, the 50 year old dudes in the band and stuff. So I, I would just play in jazz bands, blues bands. Um, you know, wedding cover bands, things like that, wherever, you know, I might be needed or something and could make an extra buck. And so I kind of, you know, that, that's sort of how I started. That was mostly just in the East Coast. I played a lot in Burlington, Vermont, Boston, um, New York, and, you know, would travel where uh, I could find a job or a gig, basically. How are you finding those gigs? That, that's fascinating to me as well. Um, like, 
Yeah, that was, was like, I want to join this wedding band. Like, yeah. how did you know they needed a guitar player? Well, I would either. So I had this friend then who's not in music at all anymore. He's actually a chef in Philadelphia. But um, he had just like a large, he, he basically would do that. And, and he had like a large just kind of connection of people. And we all kind of knew each other. I don't know. It's kind of just like this sort of East Coast community and people would fill in when they needed to. And uh, you sort of found a gig a little bit of a different way each time. You know, there was no like set business strategy. This is how I find my gigs. You contact me uh -huh. through here. It was always sort of like a friend pulled a friend that they like a word of mouth out. type yeah, thing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And you do that for a while. Like, were you writing music on your own as well during this time? Uh -huh. period or? Yeah, I was writing music. Uh, it wasn't really, I didn't really know how to produce or record or anything. So it was kind of just like, you know, guitar based songs and, uh, and you know, nothing was really kind of coming of it. You know, I, you know, there's that time period in every musician's life, I, especially, you know, not as, I guess not as much anymore since everyone can do everything on their own. But uh, when I was a bit younger, um, you know, you, I, I think I probably formed in the court in like three year period, like, you know, 15 different bands to try to like, sure, sure. So, to work out. Uh, and it usually never did. Um, and cause you know, everyone's young, everyone has their own opinion of how they want to do stuff. So I would just keep, I kept forming bands and it never worked. And I kept um, playing in groups and, you know, tried to make some, uh, some extra money here and there when I could. Um, it didn't really, nothing really started working for me until I, I learned how to uh, produce a friend of mine gave me Ableton, um, a cracked version of it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I downloaded it, obviously, and I, I just started like going on there. And, and once I kind of delved into the world of, you know, bedroom production, um, that's when I like, a, you know, a clear path sort of emerged to me of, oh, if I just do this and put it on SoundCloud and get involved in that community, uh, I could end up becoming successful by, you know, just getting songs that way. And I don't have to work with a, a band and, you know, three or four other kids who all have their own different opinions of how the song should sound and this and that. And, and it's way less political. And, and so I just, as soon as I discovered Ableton, I kind of dropped every single other thing I was doing musically and just like focus on producing and writing uh, like that. Yeah. It's like more of a solo thing. Exactly. Yeah. And is that what, and then two feet just came of, of what you were doing there? Yeah. Um, I basically spent, it only took me as I got Ableton at 21 and, um, you know, then I got signed to a label at 23. So, right. Cause you had yeah. a huge, you had a huge hit off sound. On Cloud, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it took only about two years of just like doing Ableton every single day, uh, to get Wait. to that point. Yeah, well, you say only two years. Two years is a long time. I mean, it I'm sure that was a, that was a grind when you were doing it. You're probably like, is this ever going to land? Like, does anyone yeah. care? You're exactly right. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I remember being like, you know, I didn't, you know, thinking like, I, I never graduated from college. I would be going for runs, like in, in in the park or something, and be thinking to myself, I never graduated college. You know, I've been doing this for a year and a half. Nothing's happening. Is anything going to happen? What the hell am I doing? That type of thing. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was definitely present in that two year period. You know, looking back, you know, uh -huh. I feel like, wow, you know, <laughs> like looking back, it seems kind of easier and quicker than it was definitely at, at the time. Sure. Because like I said, two years isn't, isn't just like you put the song up after two weeks and it like yeah. blew up. It was like exactly. to go to, to be at something that long for two years and really hoping that 
it's going to land. And obviously it does. Yeah. I mean, that says something about how much you were really putting into it. You didn't go to college and you weren't, you didn't go to like, I'm surprised you didn't go to like Berkeley or something as a I, yeah, guitar I, player. No, I, I didn't graduate from college. I dropped out of school. I did go to college and I actually, exactly. I went to Berkeley. For oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. what was uh, that? Did you go in as a guitar player? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you have to audition or like sight read, do any of those fun yeah, processes? Yeah. I don't know how to read uh, music. Um, so I didn't do any sight reading or anything. I just, uh, you know, went in and, um, you know, I had like two other friends who auditioned for Berkeley and they didn't get in. And I kind of asked them what they play. And they were like, oh, I played some like, you know, jazz thing mixed with Jimi Hendrix. And the other friend said something kind of similar. And I was like, okay, so I'm not going to do that. That doesn't work. So I kind of rehearsed this. Um, I bought this acoustic guitar and I put microphones inside of it. So I could tap it. You know, those like tapping. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I did one of those for it. Um, and they, yeah, I got in for, for that. For well, they're probably like, this guy's super creative. So like kind of almost build your own guitar. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and uh, I read the, the, the guys who were at my audition were like old school kind of jazz guys. And they were sort of fascinated by the whole process. So I think that probably helped. So I, I did go there. Um, I didn't like it. I, I actually only attended about three, four weeks of classes. And then I stopped going uh, pretty much entirely. And then I, I, I didn't go, you know, the next semester. So I was only there for about a month and a half in total. Okay. Uh, you I just left. turned off to it or it wasn't just... Yeah, I was just like, this isn't, this isn't for me. I, you know, it... You know, it was a bunch of people who were very obsessed with their own, you know, instrument playing or whatever. And, you know, I, that's just not for me. I'm not like, uh, you know, they would judge if a song is good or not based on, you know, how complicated the chord progression is. And it's like, most right. favorite, those are my favorite songs have like three or four chords and they're all like basic chords, you know, a kid could learn the first. Right. Day. Some of the biggest songs of all time yeah. are that way. Right. Exactly. So I just was like, this isn't really what I want to do. So I, um, I just kind of left pretty quickly yeah well i, I, I could see that like yeah. people being kind of snooty in that sense like oh uh, exactly uh, but it, when it comes down to it like i mean blink 182 for me is a great example of a band that could write three four songs and have be one of the biggest bands on the planet yeah. green day too i mean I, yeah i think most good songs i mean you know you don't need complicated chords to make a good song sometimes it just makes them sound muddy and crowded and a normal person would listen and not care. They just want something that's catchy and easy to hum along to and fun and, you know, sure. or, you know, emotional or whatever. So it's more about, to me, music's about emotions and not about, you know, theory or complexity of, you know, right. what are doing. Sure. When did you get Ableton after you had left Berkeley? Or yeah. were you still going there? Okay. No, I had left. Um, I had left, but I actually got it from a friend who went to Berkeley um so i guess in a sense uh, <laughs> it came through the that. same vein <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah okay and then you put out go fuck yourself which is this becomes this huge hit and when you put that record out did you quickly see success on it or like can you tell me about that no I, mean, I did on soundcloud so in, immediately i saw success on soundcloud started having um you know, labels reach out to me and stuff. But in terms of it being, you know, now it has, you know, billions of streams as yeah. platinum in like, you know, 30 countries and whatever. Um, 
you know, that took a long time. It was kind of this slow burner song when it comes to, when it came to like YouTube and, and, and Spotify and, and things like that. But on SoundCloud, yeah, it, in terms of like, you know, what my friends, how many plays my friends were seeing, you know, the first day they put out a song, you know, I, the next day, I mean, that had so many plays. Uh, it was immediately clear to me that um, this new project I had started uh, finally was, you know, working. Uh, so that was something. My, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was kind of. Do you know how it initially kind of exploded, or was it something where you put it up and then you woke up in the morning and it had just like an insane yeah. amount of plays? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, that's I, I oh, put wow. it up the next day and just like uh, it was just big. I mean, I uh, I sent it to some friends, all of which had you know uh, not a huge SoundCloud following, but they all had a couple thousand followers and. You know, I sent it all to them and they shared it that night and everything like that. And the next day it just was, yeah, it was crazy. Oh my gosh. And then labels are reaching out to you. Are you overwhelmed at this point? Like, uh, you know, Um, what have I done? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, kind of, um, you know, at the same time, um, as you said, you know, I had been working, you know, at Ableton for two years and I've been playing guitar my whole life and kept starting all these bands and, um, you know, things, it, things sort of incrementally build. So like, I, I, I was at the point where I sort of knew based on how good I had gotten at producing music and based on how some of my other projects had started to do, like every project I created got a little bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So each band did a little better. Um, each, you know, alias on SoundCloud did a little better than the last one. Um, so this was the one that I finally put out that like, you know, connected. So I, I was definitely like really happy, but um, I think it kind of knew. I, I heard the song, you know, I obviously wrote it. And when I was done writing it, I was like, there's no way this isn't going to do really well. You okay. Know? Yeah. You knew there's something special there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And then you signed a Republic. Uh-huh. And are you worried once you get on that, you have this major label backing you? Are you like, oh, now how am I going to follow this up? Or did you not, was that not a thought? Or did you um, already know that you had more more hits in the art, you know, kind of in the pipe? Yeah. I didn't really worry about that. I, I don't know why, you know, the real thing that started to bother me was I was just like, um, I want to put out music. I want to put out more music right now. Like I, I write every day, you know, uh-huh. I'm a very disciplined writer. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was just like, I need to put out more stuff. I want to put out more stuff. And then, then they just were like, no, 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 wait, just keep collecting songs, et cetera. That, that bothered me. Uh, you know, I didn't have any sort of fear. Like, I hope this does well, you know, this, okay. that. I, I didn't really care. I don't know why. <laughs> That's yeah. a good outlook, though. I mean, instead of saying, you know, I just wanted to write. pondering it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you put out, I feel like I'm Drowning was the next song you put out. And it goes number one on all, all charts. And I, like, yeah. we talked about earlier with, you know, the station I was at, we would play the hell out of it. Like, you know, heavily, like every other hour I was playing and people loved it. And it was, I mean, obviously it's a massive song for you. And what was it like to see that like next level, you know, radio success. And, you know, I'm sure that must've been a totally different, you know, experience. Yeah. I mean, that type of song, although, you know, Go Fuck Yourself has itself in its certain circles and, and still has more streams, but, you know, having something at radio and then playing late night and having like a bunch of people want to do interviews and all this stuff. Um, yeah, that was definitely like a very uh, crazy experience. Um, 
you know, it was just sort of a wild kind of ride. You know, it, it's not as fun as people might imagine, though, because it's not like you're just sitting around enjoying it. You know, you're waking up and your schedule is like, you know, just slammed from the second you wake up to the second you go to bed. And, you know, it's a ton of traveling and playing radio shows all over. And, um, you know, you're almost never home and you're on like mm-hmm. you know, 100 flights that year and et cetera, et cetera. So you don't really have time to enjoy it that much. Um, you know, and I've had friends who've had, you know, number one on the radio and they kind of, when, when I talk to them about it, they sort of say the same thing. <laughs> you know, you right. don't yeah it's not you don't really have much time to enjoy it or soak it up or anything like that because you're just constantly moving once you're at that level it's everybody wants a piece and it's like oh hey come come play our show and exactly yeah i mean it's busy 24 7. wow and do when do you have time to write the the follow-up record pink Um, yeah basically like just when i you know got a week or two finally at home instead of being on the road or uh you know i i wouldn't you know have to cancel you know interviews and stuff like that just so i had more time to write so that record was written on and off the road it wasn't like uh you know block out a three-month period and write the record it was uh you know just whenever i had the chance kind of <laughs> sure and i mean you had another hit on that record i mean you had a handful of hits but you we played that song too i mean right exactly yeah, yeah. Well, that song's got a, you know, uh, the music video has a, a lot of, you know, millions and millions of streams and it's got a bunch on, on uh, Spotify. Yeah, that song was too. I, and fans requested all the time. That song did really well too. Yeah. Um, is- but the cult song on that record is Baby, BBY. Uh-huh. Um, that's probably one of our most popular uh, live show songs. Song. Scream requested from, you know, every crowd, you know, ever. Um, and it's definitely one of the cooler live songs and everything like that. So that record was great for our touring. I think that record was better um, than the previous record for our, our touring. Um, you know, some records are great for radio and streaming, and some records help really build your live show because people just really want to see that type of show live. You know, uh-huh. so that record helped out the touring kind of more than anything else. Okay. And was Baby out when you started getting people to request it or was it a song that people knew that you were doing live and they're like, oh my God, we want to hear yeah, that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You know, it actually, cause we started playing it live before it was out and then uh-huh. you know, like the, the, the sort of culty, uh, culty like fan following that goes to my shows knew about it. People would request it, you know, scream it out, you know, and they were guessing the name of it and everything like that. So that song's, an interesting hit to me because it lives more in the real world than it does on like either radio or streaming. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. I didn't realize, I didn't know that. That's, yeah, that's really yeah. cool. That, yeah. That that it, song kind of lives on and it probably meant a lot to you knowing that it wasn't even on the record and people are already resonating with it. Yeah. That was a really great feeling. So, you know, we, we still love playing that. That's normally, you know, either the first song or the second song we play uh, just to get people going because it's like such a quick paced track sure sure and and then of the follow-up record to that one obviously is a concept album yeah max mako's dead right and there's some fascinating story behind that correct as far as how it all kind of came together yeah i mean um that that album um meant a lot to me uh you know uh from a creative standpoint from a personal standpoint um you know from a you know, we never got to tour it. 
but from a right. standpoint, it would have been just, you know, a fabulous uh, thing to do. But um, yeah, I mean, if you have questions about that, let me know. I, I got a bunch of uh, <laughs> a bunch of stuff about that. album. No, I would love to talk about that album. I want to yeah. know, like, so you sat, you wrote the lyrics, right? It was like a story, like a 25 page kind of, how did this whole concept begin? So um, the story starts, I guess, I have a very large Central American and South American um, fan base. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, we were playing a festival in Mexico and, um, you know, uh, they told us we were going to have about 5,000 people at our set. We ended up having 45,000 people at the set. And there was like, uh, like uh, drones flying over and I got super nervous before I went on. So I sort of created this character for myself and I had been doing this before, but this is when I finally realized, oh, I'm really creating a character. And I got in a character before I went on so I could pretend to be someone else in front of all the audience and stuff like that. And, you know, I pretended to be this other thing. So it was easier for me to get on stage. And then I started thinking after that, like, okay, you know, I, I, I like to create characters to perform, you know, is there a character, is there a story I want to tell uh, in an album and create a character based on people I may have met or know or, or something like that. So um, I, I'm not sure if you're aware, I'm guessing you probably are. I spent a bit of time in a psych ward in a hospital mm -hmm. uh, in Bellevue, New York. And, you know, it's a public hospital. Uh, when you go into a psych ward against your will, you're, you end up being a ward of the state. So they don't let you out. Um, like you can't just say, oh, you know, you could be a billionaire or the founder of Apple. If the state has you in a hospital, um, you can't, can't just leave. Out. Yeah, you can't just leave. You have to stay until you're approved to get out. And it's a, it's a public taxpayer funded hospital. So uh, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, I think it's a really, truly horrible thing. Um, these places are badly run, you know, they're kind of falling apart. Um, a lot of the people there, um, you know, some of them are violent and they can keep them in, they keep them in different areas, but most of them are just, you know, uh, homeless people who, uh, you know, gotten some sort of altercation on the street. Um, they didn't commit a crime, but they're acting dangerous or whatever. So they, the police come and pick them up and put them in the hospital. So that, that was a lot of the people at the site board. Um, but, you know, out of that, there was some people with very fascinating, very interesting, uh, sometimes beautiful stories about their life, um, about how they ended up there, about, you know, the things that precipitated them becoming homeless or their mental collapse or... Um, you know, just how, yeah, basically just, you know, their story and everyone had uh, a different, interesting story. And a lot of these people were really beautiful people. And I enjoyed talking to a lot of them and learning from a lot of them and, you know, uh, figuring out um, their life. And so, you know, when I decided to come up with it, I, I wanted to make a concept album. I decided I wanted to, I had a bunch of notes from the psych ward from talking to a bunch of these people. So I, I just wanted to make like an amalgamation, combine some elements of their story into the story for the album. Um, the pandemic had just hit. I had a bunch of time in my hands and I wanted to do something that was both cathartic and, and meant something more to me than just simply, you know, creating a, you know, like a sexy song uh, or a song just for the, the live show or something like that. I, I really wanted to tell a story um, because I had the time and, and all of that. 
So that's kind of where the album came from. And uh, I'm really happy with, you know, how it turned out. No, it's an incredible record. And even the videos that all go kind of go with it are so cool as well. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah. With you also hired what, uh, like a, like an acting coach and, and everything else to, to kind of go along with the record. Yeah. Um, he is a absolutely brilliant guy. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he coached uh, Rami Malik um, for Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, for uh, the Freddie Mercury role? Yeah, for the Freddie Mercury role. Um, you know, he himself is a fantastic actor. Um, you know, he's a, a big character actor, you know, for one of his own shorts, you know, where he was a homeless person. You know, he spent two weeks on the streets in Boston um, and, you know, has just absolutely insane stories from that. And uh, he's just a totally brilliant guy when it comes to getting in the role. So I worked with him um, for a couple of months. Um, to sort of really figure out how I wanted to do this character for the music video, music videos and stuff. But a large part of it was going to be for the live show. Um, so I could act as a character on the live show. Unfortunately, you know, that tour, as well as the pink tour, uh, right. postponed and then, you know, eventually canceled because of the pandemic. So I haven't, I don't think I'll ever get a chance to do the Max Makeup Tour. Maybe you know, twenty years from now, if I want to like. Oh, uh, you don't. You don't have any plans to do to bring it out after no, you know, that things are opening. Because I, I know you have some shows coming up. Yeah, but you know, I keep moving. I, you know, I always keep moving, and you know, the next album is coming out, and I, I, I don't want to go back and do the. I, I, I just gotta keep you know pumping forward with music. Move forward, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the upcoming tour is going to be, you know, a lot of the old music, you know, some stuff from Max Mako and then a lot of the, the new album too. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So you had this whole thing, this whole like, thing mapped out, it sounds like for, for did, Max yeah. Mako's dead, right? Yeah. Um, it's and were you, unfortunate. <laughs> were you, were you in the, were you in the process of creating the whole kind of live show when, when COVID happened or were, was that already a, the pandemic already kind of a thing? The pandemic was a thing, but you know, we all thought that, um, you know, I guess we all thought that it would be over sooner than it was or touring would come back sooner than it was. And, you know, we were just way off by time timing, you know, the, the Max Mako tour, we wanted to do it in, you know, spring, early summer of this year. And, you know, obviously, that never happened. I mean, we even had the dates up and everything like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's so unfortunate. Cause I'm sure that was a lot of work and, and yeah. big, you know, preparation yeah. for that. I mean, like hiring the, the actors and, and I mean, yeah, that was a, that was a real bummer, but you know, what are you going to do? I didn't really, you know, you know, there's nothing to do. I just got to keep moving <laughs> and you know, maybe we'll incorporate it in some way in the future or, you know, do a tour just of that album, you know, down the line. But, um, you know, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see. Like, yeah. Like you said, you got to keep moving forward. Yeah. So once you yeah. realize like this probably isn't going to stop for a while, uh, when, how quickly do you start writing this new record? And obviously I want to talk to you about fire in my head, which is the newest yeah. one that you put out. Um, I started writing it basically the day I was finished writing Max Pinko. Oh, really? Uh, that I, quickly? Uh, just yeah, moving forward. I, uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, um, I have to write every day. I can't, I can't go a day without writing music, you know, at least wow. a couple hours. 
yeah, I just, I, you know, I won't be able to sleep. I don't, I don't feel good about myself. You know, I need to, I need to do it every day. So uh, as soon as I finished Max Mako, you know, normally I would, you know, be preoccupied by preparing the live show and rehearsing with the band and then doing the tour. But we obviously didn't have that this time. So I just dived right into the next record. It's actually, the next record's um, completely done. It's like more of a mix of my, I wanted to kind of revisit my old sound from the first EP a bit. So this next record kind of um, touches on that a bunch. Wow. What was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Just, I just, uh, I just, I, I don't know. You know, I did, I, I did the concept album, which is something I've always wanted to do. Um, and then I just, I wanted to see just creatively kind of as an experiment, what it would be like to kind of revisit my old sound with uh, a lot of the skills I feel like I've developed over the past, you know, six years mm -hmm. um, and, and see how I could re, you know, just redo it and see, you know, see, see if I developed on it, see if I can expand on it. And, and, and I thought it would be an interesting creative, um, you know, thing to practice and do. And it definitely was, I had a, I had a ton of fun writing this album and it's way more kind of free form. Uh, a lot of these songs are gonna do just, you know, fabulously for the live show. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm super proud of this one too. So I can't wait for everyone to, to hear this one. And uh, obviously it's doing really well. Um, uh -huh. You know, statistically, Fire In My Head um, got the most streams the first month of any of my releases on Spotify ever. Um, wow. Yeah, more than I feel like I'm drowning. Cause you know, um, my songs usually take kind of a while to start picking up. That's just kind of the way alt music is, at least for me. And, and yeah, friends, yeah, it just you know it takes way longer than pop or hip hop to kind of right. And um, this one just started doing really well right off the bat, and it's still doing really well. Um, it's still in my you know top ten on Spotify and just keeps going up. And uh, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's a good start for sure for the first single off the new album. Yeah, I was gonna say that must feel pretty good knowing that going back to your roots didn't. I mean, it's working. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the fans, you know, uh, love that. I mean, they were just super hyped when the song came out, and all the comments were like, "Oh, this sounds like the first EP, but like different, and like you know, all this stuff." And um, I think it's gonna be kind of. I think it's gonna be really fun to put this record out. That's really exciting. Yeah. And you said you well. You're talking about you write every. You talked about how you write every day. Uh, and you've done a lot of collaborations. Is that something you enjoy doing? Like for, personally, I love the song you did with Upsol. I love her. Um, we've had, I became friends with her just off of this podcast. She's a great human being. And I love that collaboration you did with her with drugs. Yeah, she is awesome. Um, she's super cool. I think she's a total rock star. Uh, and uh, yeah, she, I was super happy to jump on that song. Obviously she was gonna come on tour. She was gonna open for me on tour. Yeah. On a pink tour. And so, you know, before we were going on tour together, um, we were like, I, I, I was like, I love this song. I'd love to jump on the song. Um, and, you know, we're touring together. So that could be something really fun, you know, for the show and for the tour and whatever. And she was super all about it. And, um, you know, they sent me the stems and everything. And I actually recorded my part in about 30 minutes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And we didn't really think much of it and put it out and it was great for the first couple months everyone seemed to like it and then it went you know super viral on tiktok mm -hmm. uh, the version with me uh singing on it like the, the yeah. part that went viral was sort of the end of my verse and then in the chorus with her and i singing together and it went really viral on tiktok and you know got 
two million video usages and Charlie D'Amelio and whatever all you know all these all the things <laughs> like you know TikTokers were doing the trend with it and Will Smith did it and everything like that and you know that song kind of blew up um, and now it's got a you know tens of millions of streams on her page and it just that was just a, ended up being a super successful collaboration. That's so cool. She, yeah. Taylor's so cool. Like when we met her was the, the beginning, I interviewed her when she was touring with Max Frost and he kind of helped develop her early on. And they were playing at in San Diego, the side room at the House of Blues, which is only a couple hundred people. And she was the opener. And it, it's so cool to see like how she's catapulted, uh, you know, to this kind of this next level. Yeah. And I love that you collaborated with her because what you're doing is so, I mean, obviously amazing as well. Thank um, you. Yeah. And real quick on that, the video, the video you shot, was that all in LA? You were in LA at the time when, and I love the black and white kind of old, like really yeah. old feel of it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we were doing big budget. I've been doing big, big budget music videos for years. You know, I feel like I'm drowning video, which has almost hundred million plays. It was a, a lot of money. And, you know, most of the videos were really expensive. And, and, and I was just kind of like, you know, um, I don't want to do that for this album. I want this album to be black and white, like my first CP, kind of have the similar vibe, feel like, you know, old two feet. And so that was just, you know, my friends, um, we got like a Super 8 camera and we got like a digital camera, like from the early 90s or 90s or something. And, you know, we just shot that, you know, just living life. It's not really like, you know, there was no big shoot with catering and a bunch of staff and stuff like that. It was just, you know, us kind of driving around and going surfing and uh you know driving up to santa barbara and stuff like that and it was just sort of a really chill way to do a music video um and i think i'm gonna do like a bunch more of those uh for this album because you know they're super cheap and it's you know nostalgic and uh, you know it kind of makes you be like oh i want to go for a drive with my friends and it's really honest and, and right all yeah you think you'll do one in new york now that you're back I do. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And thank you so much for, for doing this, Bill. I appreciate you, man. This has been awesome. Thank and you I, for having me. Yeah. I have one more question for you. I want to yeah. know if you have any advice for aspiring artists. Oh, <laughs> I have a lot of advice for inspiring <laughs> artists. Um, I, when, at what point in their career, just to make it a little more pinpointed, any point you want to decide on doesn't matter just any bit of advice you have okay i'm gonna pick the point in an aspiring artist career where they might have labels reaching out to them is that a good okay. point is that okay i love that point that's great okay. my advice to you would be um if you're gonna sign with a label if you really want to if you love that label and you've always looked up to them or you know you think it'll bring you a bunch of opportunities if you're gonna sign to that label make sure you don't sign your life away. Make sure you don't sign a three album deal, four album deal. Uh, make sure you sign for one EP or one album to see if you like it. And if you do, you can always sign on for more. And if they do, they'll always have you for more. But um, signing right away for something, if they refuse to do a one album deal or one EP deal, um, their motives aren't in the right place and you shouldn't do it no matter how much you want to sign with them. And you will find, if you have labels reaching out, that means they see a future in you. You should see a future in you. You should invest in yourself and you should only do things that will help you the most out in the future. Cause that's all that really matters. So that's kind of my advice to inspiring.